We're lean, we're hungry, we're young. We have a lot to prove, and I think people like that. Males and females are programmed differently. Does it mean that I am any less qualified than the, than the other male candidate? I don't believe so. There is a customer focus now. You know, it is, there is a transition to a, a service provision concept, right? It is not just, here's your rent invoice and you're gonna pay it. When that clarity comes, what will the investment landscape look like? Where will the opportunities lie? Nobody really knows for sure. And I think having that nimbleness that we have right now will give, will really pay off. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Rewire podcast, a podcast that aims to rewire the real estate industry one story at a time. In this podcast, we talk about all things diversity and inclusion from gender, ethnicity, background and sexuality to the diversity of roles there are in the industry, the diverse skill sets required and the need for diverse and inclusive thinking. I'm your host, Sam McClary, and on today's episode, I'm joined by the recently newly installed uh, Chief Investment Officer at Seaforth Land, Leslie Davison. Hi, Leslie. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me today. Uh, it's an honor. It's lovely. Um, so we've had Tyler in this, um, not in this very podcast studio, in our small pokier podcast studio, so already an upgrade. And he was desperately searching for some diversity in his business. Um, especially gender diversity, uh, and he eventually found found you, uh, and uh, it turns out it's a, a great appointment. Uh, uh, as you joined the company in September, and already last week, as revealed by EG, secured the first major investment deal for the business, or in in your time there. So that's pretty quick turnaround. So you're obviously, uh, you know, not taking your time settling in, just straight down to business. Yeah, Tyler threw me in at the deep end, for sure. I mean, I, I, he basically said, here's the deal, you have to get this over the line. <laughs> um, but I feel very fortunate because, as you say, I'm nine weeks in and, you know, we're just about to complete on this acquisition, which is my first acquisition. So it's a, a milestone for me um, and I'm very excited about it. Um, you know, the asset is a great asset. Wingate House, um, it's very thematic to what Seaforth are good at, taking and mid-century office building and our business plan is to bring it to a modern standard and to target creative tenants so a creative building for creative tenants and of course i should i must say um a big thanks and how grateful we are to be working with bc partners um charles tut who uh, is a principal that we worked very closely there we had a great working partnership um, and getting this over the line and and so it's a, it's a first for them <coughs> as well isn't it in terms of their their london in investment so um, they must, I, I would assume, feel happy to have someone like Seaforth uh, alongside them, who's you know who's been playing in this market for for a little bit now, with with more more to come. But we've seen, I guess, in the investment market, particularly in London, it's been a little bit light on on deals getting over the the line um, uh, recently. So h how was that? How was that process f for you? And how, what did you think when when you came into the business? And there's Tyler saying, "Hey, I'll get this done." Easy peasy. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I was excited, right? So there is a live deal actually getting over the line with agreed heads of terms. Um, and I give Tyler and his team a lot of credit for that. You know, I walked into a deal and I had to get it over the line 
yes, the last nine weeks have been a lot of work, but Tyler and his team have been monitoring the acquisition for more than two years. Wow. And I think very carefully and methodically have been um, just tracking it, you know, looking at market value, looking at where the market was going, seeing the political uncertainty, um, and yet also seeing a huge opportunity and also seeing, again, that this building is very much a Seaforth land building mm-hmm. um, and something where we felt we could add our Seaforth touch um, and create some value, add value, um, and take this building to a better place. And, and what does that mean for if people are sort of on the outside looking in? What does a Seaforth building mean? What, what are the sort of key attributes of that building? Well, I believe that we are highly selective in our stock selection. Um, You know, we don't just go for any office building. You know, we like to repurpose a beautiful building, take something that has been, I don't want to say neglected, but perhaps has been, um, hasn't had a chance, you know, to be refurbished or um, redeveloped. And Wingate House has had its existing tenants in place for 20 to 30 years um, on average which means this is the right time to be looking at a redevelopment. Um, and actually, it's a little bit scruffy on the outside, but it will look beautiful when we're finished with it. Space House is very um, endemic of that as well. You know, Again, CAA had been occupying it for 30 years. Beautiful, you know, uh, brutalist building um, by a renowned architect, Richard, Richard Seifert. You know, and we have this opportunity to bring it to a modern standard and take, again, what is a creative building, and provide it to what we believe will be best received, most welcomed by the creative industry. Mm. But actually, you know, I think what we've seen recently in the office market is that even the most corporate of blue chip tenants are also looking for creative space. And that's another theme that Seaforth are very much uh, focused on, is that, you know, we believe that all corporates are more interested in what the building that they occupy says about them. And in order to attract best talent, best minds, They also want to occupy best-in-class buildings, quality space, beautiful space, in good locations with good infrastructure and amenities in the in the uh, uh, in the near location. It's great, isn't it, that you know individuals, individual workers in businesses, and now care about the place in which they they work, the the actual building that it's in. They want to work in a a beautiful building that is is functional and we have we you know we do have so many of them in in london in in the uk in particular particularly those you know those old buildings that have been built really really well and as you say might be a, you know a little bit unloved but can be something quite quite special and you know in these these times when we've got to think about the the planet mm. um isn't it's such a it, it's such a great thing to be able to bring those buildings back to life I wholeheartedly agree. I think, you know, this, the Seaforth proposition really works in a city like London because, as you say, there are so many beautiful historic buildings that have potential for reworking, and it absolutely is more green to, quote-unquote, recycle a building, right? The carbon footprint of a refurbished building is a fraction of a building that is being um, developed from scratch. Mm. Um, And... uh, you know, which is not to say that we would never look at a ground-up development, but all of the buildings that we have in our portfolio at the moment are those buildings that we believe we are repurposing and we're bringing 
up to modern standards. Um, and they, of course, because they are historic buildings, are oftentimes located in the best places, mm-hmm. um, which means that it's going to appeal to tenants um, across a range of sectors and character. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it works. It definitely works, especially in London. So so before we get to um, your journey to Seaforth C- and, and going back to that, that podcast, um, slightly controversial podcast, perhaps I did with Tyler back at the end of last year, um, tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about, about you, how you got into, into real estate and, and that journey up until the, uh, the move into Seaforth. Well, my entire career has pretty much been in real estate. Um, you can tell from my accent. I'm a North American. I was based in New York. Um, and actually, that's when I first crossed paths with Tyler and our chairman, Kurt Roloffs. Uh, we all started in the same place. I actually was hired originally by Bankers Trust before it disappeared. But it was a great real estate program. And then, of course, we merged with Deutsche Bank and had the strength of the Deutsche Bank balance sheet. And what we had was a, a, a very intensive principal investment program where we're investing up on balance sheets. Um, I, as a young analyst, was very lucky um, to be transferred to the London office. I was only supposed to be here for six months. I dragged it out <laughs> to a year and a half. I never went back. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so that, and therefore my my career ended with Deutsche Bank. Um, but you know, Tyler and Kurt were also part of the team, the extended team. They were heading up the Asian business. Um, so, you know, I feel very lucky to have grown up I- with Tyler and Kurt of a sort. Even though we weren't in the same office, we definitely were um, brought up with the same disciplines, let's say, and the same values and the same approach to property investments. Um, and then, of course, I was very lucky to find myself working for Delancey, you know, another very disciplined, well-known property investor and I spent 14 years there working with Jamie and Paul. That was an amazing experience. You know, I owe them so much for giving my grounding and my foundation in UK property. You know, it is through my time at Delancey that I believe I've matured into a, you know, an experienced investment professional. Um, yeah, it, it's been a great journey. Um, and in fact, you know, I never thought I'm, I would ever leave Delancey <laughs> because I'd been there for so long. Um, but you know, new opportunities arise, and Seaforth Land came calling. Hmm. And so, so tell us about that opportunity. When when I last spoke to Tyler, he was desperate to um, get some f- some fresh blood into the business. He was very aware that if you looked down the board of directors, there were a, a, a bunch of men who all looked pretty similar. And he he was really brave, I thought, in saying. I only want to hire a woman, which could sound awful in that, no, you should hire the best person for the job. But he believed that the best person for the the best man, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, as I often do, um, would be a woman because he knew that they could would have the exact same skill sets, but would bring something extra to the business that it that it needed. And I mean, obviously, you you knew Tyler from from days of days of old. But when you when you heard that, were you a bit taken aback, or did you think he's you know he's spot on here? Well, I, you know, I think some people might question that approach, as you say. Um, but I appreciate that I'm working with someone who is my partner in business um, that appreciates diversity of thought and diversity of presence, and diversity of viewpoint. Um, 
and frankly, diversity of skill set. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, you know, we are different, you know, males and females are programmed differently. Does it mean that I am any less qualified than the, than the other male candidate? I don't believe so. And I, you know, I've built my career in the UK property industry for 19 years. And I believe I stand shoulder to shoulder with any male candidate. Um, and people who have worked with me, I hope, would say the same. Mm. Um, so do I question his approach? No, I completely understand that. And I think that more offices, more corporates should take a similar approach. Um, not to say that you should have quotas. I, I'm not, I have to say I I've personally am against quotas. But I believe that there should be a diverse candidacy considered for every single role. And then when there are candidates of equal standing um, and equal qualification, then you need to look at your office and say, does my office reflect the population at large, mm. you know, and, you know, the property industry in the UK is a very long-standing industry. It is historically white, middle-aged male. It's improved so much since I arrived here 19 years ago. You know, I remember going to all of those black tie dinners at, in the Dorchester where literally I might be one female sitting at a table of 10 or 12 and actually many tables wouldn't have any females sitting at their at, at their table. Um, I got a lot of drinks bought for me <laughs> in my early years in, in, in London. Um, but that's improved. It, you know, is it 50-50 yet? No, it's not. But it's definitely improved. And I think diversity is embraced more so now than ever before. Um, and I hope it continues to be. Uh, me too. And it, it feels like part of this transition that uh, I think real estate seems to be going through, you know, sort of, uh, it, it's almost taking on a new identity, isn't it? Or or the identity it should have always had that it's it's a service industry and it is serving the population, which isn't all um, male, white, middle class. It's, it's, it's all sorts and uh, um, all backgrounds. So if we are to build buildings that work for people, that can only come when we have that diversity within within the business. And there's something that just feels like it's clicked in a lot of a lot of businesses. There, you know, there's there's still work to be done. That has said, oh, actually, this is who this is who we can we can mm. be. And you know, I don't think it's you know, there's no there's no room to to blame that you know that was the way it used to used to be. That yeah. you know, that's the past. But mm. there, I you know, I do think there's a, a celebration that needs to be had that there has been this little little switch up that um, the industry industry is transitioning to be what it what it always could be I agree I, I mean frankly I think across all sectors there is a customer focus now you know it is there is a transition to as you say a, a service provision concept right it is not just here's your rent invoice and you're going to pay it and I like hearing more and more often now, you know, um, particularly in the PRS sector, the residential sector, you know, where people don't refer to their occupants as tenants anymore. They're customers. Mm. And that is the way we should treat all of our tenants. They should all be customers, whether they're office customers or residential customers. They all are paying for a service. Um, you know, the cynic in me would say, well, you know, the office landlords of London have had to wake up due to the WeWorks, the Foras, um, the story, uh, stories of the world, you know, who are pushing them um, to move ahead with the times. But it's, it's necessary. Mm. You know, this is where 
the next generation wants to be. They want a service to be provided to them. That being said, though, Sam, I'm going to also say I firmly believe that traditional office space will, you know, on a 30-year lease basis, you know, with five-yearly upward <laughs> rent reviews, will still continue to have a place in the market. I think they will coexist alongside serviced offices. Um, but what I hope are the tenants, the occupants, the customers who occupy that space will reflect this diversity that we've been talking about. Um, and, yeah. And, and long-term tenants still need service, don't they? Do. Don't they? You know, there's still there are always going to be those businesses that want a, a place. Someone said to, in fact, one of our future female leaders had um, a fantastic line in her speech where she said, um, "People won't leave somewhere they love, um, whether that's a home, an office, and or or anywhere, a, a place." Um, and I think that you know that had that has to apply across the board. And if you know if you're a long-term tenant, you've got to love that that mm. place and, and stay in there. And if if the real estate industry can create that, then you know we don't need to worry so much about short-term leases mm-hmm. and the volatility that there that there is at the moment. Yes, absolutely. I mean, listen, the UK is a bit spoiled, right? Not every market gets the benefit or has had the benefit of 30-year leases. It, it's not part of every market, you know. The French market's not like the American market's not like that. You know, you you oftentimes see much shorter leases, but the probability of renewal is high because, as you say, if you love the building, you love the location, you love the infrastructure around you, you don't leave. Um, I, I think what's important in this day and age, again, in every sector, is optionality, right? Just having that option to pay for additional services. Um, I think we're also at danger of saying, here, you're going to have to pay a 90-pound a, a rent and also a 90-pound service charge because I'm charging you for yoga clubs, running clubs, and a cafe, and free coffee, and fil- you know filtered drinking water, and you know super high-quality oxygen being pumped in. Not every tenant wants that either, mm-hmm. right? You know, and and so we are at danger, I think, of saying, yes, I want services, but how many of these services am I willing to pay for? So, th- and this is that fine line that we will learn, I think, over time. I don't think everybody knows where that line will be. And again, I think optionality is key. If you can give some options to certain tenants and take away them from another's and rentalize it accordingly, that would be the best of all worlds, in mm. my opinion. And I guess that you know, if we give, if we don't give options and we just give these services to everyone, soon enough they'll become expected and mm. then the value in them goes out the win- out the window. Well, there's a huge question right now as to how you value a rent when actually what's built into that rent is provision of services where you have a high operating expense in delivering those services. Um, so yes, I think you know, there is uh, there's some learning to do. Yeah. There's some learning to do, but what I really love from a customer's pr- perspective is the optionality. You know, I I look at um I always use health clubs as an example, right? <clears throat> My health club has a DJ, nice shampoo and conditioner, you know, um, about 50 different classes I can take in a week. Do I participate in any of them? No. But, you know, <laughs> the, the DJ and the, and the nice shampoo and conditioner is what gets me there. My husband, on the other hand, because he's super disciplined and he's always been a gym buff, he now opts for the 20 pound a month option for a c- concrete box. He doesn't even have a receptionist at, mm. at his gym, right? He doesn't. He has to take his own towel, right? But that's that's the range of health club now. And I think office space 
retail space, all, all property will go in that direction too. Resi is already there, right? Mm. You know, you can pay for a cheaper Resi option. You could pay for a Resi option that has a cinema room, a gym, a pool, right? It's, um, it's optionality. That's what's exciting. It is exciting to have that optionality, I think, now. And, and sh- surely that must be what makes um, real estate as a career such a such a, a a great career that there is there is so much out there and and different sectors learn from each other and you mm. can you can borrow and and enhance and and, and grow and I, I assume that's why you you've stayed in the industry for for nineteen years. Yeah, I mean, real estate is a fantastic industry. You know, I st- I've always been in finance there was a very conscientious decision to be in property. Mm. You know, it's tangible. It's, you can see it, you can feel it, you sit in it. We all require it. You know, it, it covers all sectors um, and every, everybody who, you know, who's alive needs real estate, you know. And the, what I like about real estate investment, I, I say this to all juniors who I'm training or interns who I'm giving an investment, you know, one-on-one, 101 uh, class. I say, you know, the same principles that apply, that we apply to buying your home, your your flat for 200,000 pounds are the same principles that we would apply to a 200 million pound office building. Mm. Um, same principles, you know. And so, yeah, real estate is exciting and it is changing and it does change because people change and times change. And yet what's nice about real estate too is that you get to hold on to the history. Mm. You get to hold on to the architecture and the buildings that people have built for us from the past. And you, and many of them you hold on for as long as you can. Sure. Yeah. Now, I had a um, conversation uh, last week actually with um, Stephen Hubbard, who has uh, spent 43 years at CBRE, is leaving at the end of the year. And um, there were two, a point that he made that he, his sort of fears for the sector were one that um, people aren't talking to uh, understand the occupier enough, which we, we've touched on. And the second being that um, there's not enough people in real estate who underst- who have enough financial acumen, who don't understand the role or don't understand deep enough the role that real estate plays um, financially. And he said um, over the course of his career, he's never seen either that occupier story or the financing story moving at a quicker quicker pace so I just wonder with with your sort of finance background mm. whether whether that's something that, that you ag- agree with or do you think we're seeing more people with a, f- a finance background or finance understanding coming into the sector if not how do how do we do that that's an interesting question I I've been very fortunate to always have worked for property investors who are very sound financially right so you know Bankers Trust, Deutsche Bank, Delancey, Seaforth Lands, you know, all very strong fiduciaries in looking after their investors' capital, all very good at understanding property fundamentals, property cycles. <coughs> but as you say, underlying property always, you know, is a backdrop of the economy, interest rates, finance, um, capital. So it's important that they go hand in hand. I actually think that it's improved in my time in the UK. There are definitely people, I think, who are just property people, um, and and they are not as strong in the finance side. But in my 19 years here, we've seen more and more sophisticated financial investors coming into the market. I think that has brought the game level up quite a lot. I think there is a sophistication to investment now that there hasn't been before. Um, Institutional investors who used to just, you know, 
allocate 100 million pounds to Blackstone or KKR, you know, well, guess what? They are actually making very direct investments now. They're choosing their own operating partners like Seaforth, right, because they are, they are also more sophisticated from a financial point of view, um, and they can make some of these investment decisions for themselves now. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that that is Im- it's improving. You know, it, maybe it's a bit slower um, than we would like, but I think the financial sophistication is definitely there. Mm. Well, real estate's never been accused of going too fast, has it? So, uh, <laughs> um, and now, now just to um, sort of talk a little bit about about your role today at Seaforth Land and ambitions. Um, for that role, um, harking back one last time to um, podcast with with Tyler when he made the um, mistake, I would say, as um, we always hang on to these things of saying, um, you know, Seaforth has grown to three hundred million pounds of assets under management in three years. He's got a target of one billion within five years. Um, <laughs> we never forget it when people say those those things. Oh, so Tyler, yeah. So um, he's he's put a, quite a high number mm-hmm. there in um, you know some uh, let's say uh, uncertain times. Uh, how are you feeling about that as a challenge? I like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Um, but but you know what though, I I look at what Tyler and his team have, our team have accomplished in such a short amount of time. Again, hats off to Tyler. You know, 300 and now more, right? It's almost 400 million pounds of um, assets under management or in partnership in about four years. I think that's a, it, that's very respectable mm. um, for any operating platform. Um, and I do think it's achievable. You know, I, I, as I said a moment ago, I think institutional investors, opportunistic investors like a BC Partners are looking for somebody different. I, I think they value the the niche that Seaforth Land are in. I think they value the creativity we take to our approach to property. Um, we're, we're lean, we're hungry, we're young. We have a lot to prove, and I think people like that. Mm. Um, and again, I think the diversity of operating platforms is also attractive to them. Th- they're a bit more thinking in how they allocate their capital. And I, in, in the same breath, I'm going to say there is more capital on the ground in the UK than ever. Mm. They don't all have established teams of their own. They need operating partners. Um, and they will, again, I think, try their hand with a number of different type of operating par- partners. And that certainly is a discussion that Seaforth Land are having. You know, we get a lot of interest from people who like what we've done. They like the assets that we're doing. You know, we are focusing on a strategy that really speaks to people. You know, th- they believe in we, they believe we're pursuing a strategy that is resilience mm. in a time of uncertainty. You know, um, we are focusing on assets that will be strong in any market. Um, and actually, I think what's nice right now, you know, we have a number of strategic partners, um, but we're not beholden to any one. We don't have a particular fund mandate that we must deliver. And flexibility and dynamism, I think, in this market is going to really pay off. It means that we can deliver value up and down the risk spectrum for a range of investors. And I think having that dynamism and that flexibility will be very valuable to see forth for this upcoming period of time when people don't really know what will happen. You know, we know that there's a lack of liquidity. We know there's a lot of capital on, um, circling for investments. 
there's still some political uncertainty. When that clarity comes, what will the investment landscape look like? Where will the opportunities lie? Nobody really knows for sure. And I think having that nimbleness that we have right now will give will really pay off. That being said, you know, I know Tyler and I have spoken. I think, you know, once we have established our, well, we have already established ourselves. But when we um, have a few more assets under our belts um, and a few more investors, you know, sitting alongside us, uh, it would be nice to have a bit of discretionary capital in the future, I mm. think. Um, but, you know, this model works for us right now. And I think against this market, will be very valuable. Sure. And are, y- are you, um, does that, does the market at the moment fill you with, and the fact that you can be nimble, does that excite you? Or do mm. are you, you know, do you have any con- concerns that it might move too quick or it might be too slow and you'll be sat waiting for, for too long getting itchy feet? We have the same concerns that everybody has. You know, whether there's going to be enough liquidity in the markets. Um, and if there's not enough liquidity, what does that mean for pricing? Um, and therefore, again, I think you need to be nimble um, and you need to be able to move your strategy and you need to be able to work with different capital and different uh, return requirements. But again, I think that's where Seaforth Land is well positioned. Um, we're, uh, we're not beholden to one strategy and it does give us excitement. And you know, we're, we're constantly shown opportunities um, that I think are a bit off the radar screen, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, you know, I hope that more will come our way. And, and again, I think capital see us pursuing these opportunities. Wingate, you know, again, two years tracking an asset, that's commitment. Mm. That's being selective. That is knowing what you want and staying on top of it. Um, and that is a reflection of the value of the Seaforth team. And I think that will continue. And I think people will show us assets now based upon what we've bought to date. And Space House and Wingate House are both excellent examples of what we can do. So, so nine weeks in, first deal ticked. What's the next nine weeks going to bring? <laughs> Christmas <laughs> <laughs> and a family holiday. Um, yeah, well, for you know, we, we, we need to complete on Wingate House, which is scheduled for this week. Um, but, you know, Tyler and I were just strategizing this morning. We have a number of things in the pipeline. We, we will definitely start the new year running. Um, and the plan is to always be running. Thanks. You know, and, that, and that's, I think we'll be able to do it. I think work keeps you fit running. So uh, um, that's always a, a good thing. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast studio today. It's been a fascinating conversation. And I look forward to uh, seeing more from you uh, going going forward. And in the, if, if there is a run, I'll, I'll be there with you. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Um, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure.